Hello, Philip Terzian here, Literary Editor of the Weekly Standard, with my weekly podcast describing for you the books and arts section of the Weekly Standard, and in particular this week, the May 26th edition, which uh, I wanted to describe to you in a, uh, I hope, not futile uh, attempt to get you to look in the magazine and read the books and arts section, as well as the rest of the magazine, of course. And as a seasonal opener, we have as our lead review this week a piece by Andy Ferguson on George Will's new book entitled A Nice Little Place on the North Side, Wrigley Field at 100. I've titled Andy's review George Will at Bat, which is... Um, in, to some degree, my commentary on the tendency of men of letters uh, sometimes to romanticize baseball and find in it a metaphor for American life or American culture or American manhood. And George Will, in addition to being a political journalist, has certainly done his share of writing about baseball. But as Andy Ferguson points out, uh, George Will isn't just a kind of uh, uh, airy romantic on the subject. He's actually a serious student of the game, not interested so much in baseball and the long history of uh, America, but baseball as an institution and baseball as an athletic endeavor and as a game. And his book is about Wrigley Field, which is the home field of the Chicago Cubs, which, as any George Will reader would know, is George Will's favorite team. And it's a, it's a good team for a literary man to romanticize because it's, a, it's an old team in the history of Major League Baseball, but hasn't won a World Series uh, in many, many decades. Um, they're sort of in Boston Red Sox territory at this point, and And the evidence seems to be that they're not going to uh, climb out of that anytime soon. But in the meantime, Wrigley Field has, as stadiums often do, acquired a kind of uh, talismanic status as a, as a shrine to the game. As Andy Ferguson points out, it was not always thus. Up until quite recently, the more, the more appealing baseball park in Chicago was Comiskey Park, home of the White Sox, which was torn down some years ago and and Wrigley Field has kind of acquired the status it has among aficionados partly by inadvertence it just hasn't been changed much uh, and as Andy points out for many years the Cubs ownership in lieu of making a serious uh, shall we say financial investment in a better team used to market the Cubs as a delightful way to spend an afternoon or an evening at this wonderful baseball park. So it's an interesting and amusing piece about what seems to be an interesting and amusing uh, book. I, I am, uh, I'm not a Chicagoan. I don't know a great deal about the Cubs other than what the average newspaper reader knows, but it actually prompted me to... Uh, aspire, put on my bucket list anyway, a trip to Wrigley Field. Those of you who've been lucky enough to see a baseball game there will probably enjoy this piece, if not 
George Will's book. The second piece in the section is a review of a book by uh, Ingrid Rowland, is the author's name, called From Pompeii, The Afterlife of a Roman Town. And the reviewer is James Banner, a historian of um, early the early American Republic, but James Banner is also a kind of historiographer. He's a historian of history and a historian of the practice of writing about history or the act of being a historian. And the book from Pompeii is an interesting account of how the ruins of Pompeii have, well, first how they emerged um, out of the archaeological uh, muck. And in that time, in the past century plus, when the ruins of Pompeii have been among us, how they have been perceived and marketed and uh, used as a metaphor for all manner of historians, novelists, even movie makers. Um, I used two illustrations for the review. One is a 19th century, a sort of classic 19th century romantic German painting depicting the last days of Pompeii, Pompeii under the the threat of an of a uh, exploding Vesuvius. And then I used a photograph of uh, Ingrid Bergman and George Sanders walking around among the ruins of Pompeii during the making of a film there in the early fifties. Uh, so Pompeii, the idea of Pompeii and what it means uh, has, as with all such things, evolved over time. And this book is an interesting description of that process. I have also a review of um, the, the latest book from Philip Howard called The Rule of Nobody, Saving America from Dead Laws and Broken Government. The reviewer is Robert Whitcomb, a former colleague of mine on the Providence Journal, now retired. But Bob knows Philip Howard, although that doesn't stop him from uh, describing the occasional shortcomings of Howard. But what Howard has done in the 20 years since he first came to our consciousness with his book, The Death of Common Sense, is look at government as a as machinery that is uh, not working so well and analyze why it's not working so well. And of course, one of Howard's um, uh, insights is that we're not just over-regulated, but it's an over-legalized government that we deal with, that, that our system is sclerotic in part because there are just so many laws and regulations um, and mandates, one on top of the other, one more complex than the other, that it really makes life difficult both for the government and the private sector, and that if we could somehow clarify and rationalize and streamline, which is, of course, a kind of eternal complaint and plea, um, but especially uh, pertinent in, in the case of Howard's book, um, we'd all be better off, not just us as Americans, but the, the government would work better as well. Um, sounds like an interesting book, and Howard, of course, is a a short, pithy writer who uh, writes in a kind of pleasant journalistic style. Uh, Bob Whitcomb doesn't agree with everything he, with all of his prescriptions, but he makes a, he certainly makes the case it's worth looking at. 
The next piece is by William Pritchard, who is a professor of English at Amherst, but also an amateur musician and scholar of jazz. And it is a review of Terry Teachout's new book, which is entitled Duke, A Life of Duke Ellington. Terry Teachout is, of course, the uh, drama critic of the Wall Street Journal and uh, frequent uh, uh, writer on the cultural subjects, uh, a musician himself, and a biographer uh, previously of H.O. Mencken and more recently Louis Armstrong. In Duke Ellington, he takes on, uh, I would say, the most um, important uh, biography in American jazz, one might argue in American music. Um, every jazz musician you can name, including Louis Armstrong, um, of importance, um, has his place in the history of jazz. But Duke Ellington, I think, is first among equals, at least in my opinion. And his the length of his um, career is uh, almost as impressive as its quality. Uh, Duke Ellington was close to the birth of jazz, and yet he was still touring, still innovating, still composing as recently as the mid-1970s when he died. So his his life and career, and he really started as a professional in the early 1920s, uh, very much coincides with the golden age of American jazz. Uh, it is a commonplace now to say that Duke Ellington, the greatest American composer, was uh, Duke Ellington. I, I would not myself entirely disagree with that. It's hard sometimes to compare apples and oranges and talk about Duke Ellington in relation to, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, more classical computers like Charles Ives or Edward McDowell or whomever you want to choose. But Duke Ellington is, um, uh, his importance is, uh, no one can argue with that. Terry Teachout's biography is by far the, the most distinguished and insightful and revealing that has yet been uh, produced on the subject. And William Pritchard's review I especially like because he really talks about the the what made the Ellington band so great in the 1930s and 40s, and he breaks it down into pieces and personalities and really describes it in a way that that is not so easy. It's not easy to write about music. Um, it's a little like it's it's easier i think to write about art even in the absence of illustrations when you write about music uh the lang language doesn't quite do justice to what you're trying to to say and but william pritchett i think does a wonderful job in this piece of describing um what made duke ellington important important what makes him worthy of uh, terry teachout's um monumental biography and it's a great piece all around. I think even if you're not a jazz fan, uh, you will enjoy reading about it. Um, filling out the rest of the section are two pieces. One is a piece by me, a review by me, of a, of a book entitled The Short Strange Life of Herschel Grinchpan, A Boy Avenger, a Nazi Diplomat, and a Murder in Paris. Uh, Herschel Grinchpan is a name which, of course, means very little to anybody, especially now. But in November 1938, he was a, um, uh, a Polish Jew who 
was actually born and raised in uh, Germany, um, was born in 1921. And this was at a time when Obviously, the Jews of Germany were um, uh, faced with the not only the calamity of the Third Reich, which arrived when Herschel Grinchman was a young boy, but um, Jews like the Grinchman family was, were basically refugees from the, the old Russian Empire, where in Germany they were tended to be looked down upon by certainly by Germans, even by their fellow. German Jews, and so he and his family lived this somewhat uh, uh, disconcerting twilight existence in the Germany of that era. When Hitler came to power, the Grinchmans, of course, were even more marginalized, and at one point in the mid-1930s, young Herschel, who had dropped out of school, was sent to live with an uncle in Paris as an illegal alien, and while he was there, his family back in Germany were, along with other Polish Jews, rounded up by the Nazis and declared persona non grata and shipped literally to the Polish frontier, where, of course, the Poles didn't want them and where they sat in refugee camps for weeks on end. And Grinchman's despair at this um, and his overarching view that that the Jews of of Europe in general and Germany in particular were heading toward calamity prompted him to perform an irrational act in the sense that he walked into the German embassy in Paris and asked to speak to a diplomat and was shown to a young third secretary at the embassy and promptly shot him dead. Um, the immediate consequence of Grinchman's act was Kristallnacht. Um, the von Rath, the diplomat, died two days after he was shot, at which point uh, Goebbels and Hitler orchestrated these so-called spontaneous demonstrations of rage against Germany's Jewish population, which, in which, of course, 90 people were killed and some 1,300 uh, uh, synagogues were burned and thousands of businesses were destroyed. The author of the book, Jonathan Kirsch, uh, tends to believe that Grinchman is a kind of lost hero that this was an act of resistance in the face of Germany uh, in the face of um, uh, uh, tyranny um, but clearly the uh, uh, Grinchman's reputation is ambiguous because while it could be what he did could be perceived as such an act of resistance it certainly had a disastrous effect on the lives of Jews in Germany after that, um, what had been very, very bad got even worse as a consequence. What to do with him, of course, is an interesting question, too, which the book describes. The French never did put him on trial. The Germans, when they conquered France, uh, took him back to Germany and were going to put him on a show on trial in a kind of show trial. But that was delayed indefinitely for uh, uh, interesting reasons, and um, no one in the end, there, there, in the end, there never was a show trial of Herschel Grinchman, and of course, no one truly knows what became of him. Presumably, he was killed at some point after December 1942 when he's last heard from. But it's an interesting subject, an interesting question, an interesting 
book, a question of moral ambiguity, and and it does illuminate a, a corner of history that's not so well known. John Podhoritz's movie review this week is of a new movie uh, entitled Chef, which is about a a, uh, a cook in uh, New York who um, kind of loses his way in life and ends up selling Cuban sandwiches off a truck and and uh, finds redemption in that form. As is often the case with John's review, it's it's as much about the, the, the business of making movies or the, the world of movie making as it is about this particular film, which is directed by John Favreau, who I had not realized is a, a director as well as a fairly well-known character actor in movies. John uh, makes the point that this is a movie that could have descended very quickly into cliché and feel-goodism and... Um, or as he says, food cart as spiritual salvation. But in fact, it's a better movie than that, uh, which John uh, describes in interesting detail and in his inimitable way describes why it's better than that. All in all, I hope a interesting, balanced, and varied section for your uh, perusal this week. And with fond hopes for meeting up with you again next week on yet another Books and Arts section, I sign off for now.